All right, here we go. Welcome everyone to another edition of the Bonus Room Podcast. I am Stefan. You know me. I'm here with my co-host, my brother, Santiago. How you doing tonight? Hey, what's up, you guys? How you guys doing? Good evening to everyone out there, the fans of the Bonus Room Podcast. We, I know we say we have a special episode, but this is a, a unique and extravagant. Oh, you guys, this is one of the most important podcasts we have done in a while. So we're excited to have you guys here tonight. We got an audience tonight. You guys, we're, audience. We're, we're doing we're doing a big time today. So yeah, so we got. <laughs> see, you guys can hear them in the background. So first time live audience, right? Yeah. Well, this is, when we say this is the best one yet, this really is the best one yet because we have a very special edition of the bonus room. We are welcomed by two judicial candidates. Um, I'd like to start with you. Go ahead and uh, introduce yourself. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the bonus room. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> This, uh, my name is Melissa Lyons, and I am running for Los Angeles County Superior Court Judge Seat 90. Oh, there you go. Seat 90. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Perfect. Fernanda. My name is Fernanda Maria Barreto. Thank you for having me here in the bonus room. I am also a judicial candidate here in Los Angeles County, seat number 67. Nice. All Woo! right. Woo! Well, thank you for joining us here in our humble abode, you know, and uh, tonight we're going to go through some uh, some questions for our audience to go ahead and get to know you guys, learn what you're about, why you're running, and your influences behind that. So we'll go ahead and get right into it. You ready? Yeah, let's do it. Let's awesome. make it happen. So, well, question number one is uh, please tell us about your background, such as where are you originally from, any family background, history you wish to share with our audience. Uh, we'd start with uh, you, Melissa. Okay. Um, so I'm originally from Jamaica. Um, and I moved to the United States when I was 11 years old with my family. Um, I have a relatively large family. I'm one of five. I'm the oldest of five. Oh, um, nice. And we moved to a small town in northeastern Iowa, um, farming community, mm. where we were the only <laughs> black family in our wow. town. Um, and, you know, it, it was a good experience ultimately. Obviously, there was uh, some negative uh experiences related to race but overall i'd have to say it was uh a good experience a good upbringing um being in a small town is you know um it feels safe everybody mm. knows everybody yeah. which also means you can't get into too much trouble because everybody knew who you were. Yeah, <laughs> <I know. Exactly. laughs> um and then uh i uh, moved to, i went to college in chicago and then ultimately moved out to la after college um and i went to law school with fernanda uh in at Loyola Law School um, okay but uh in terms of other things about my life uh I do capoeira which is an Afro-Brazilian martial oh, art nice. wow. um and that's a significant part of uh the community that I I participate in Perfect. um and I also do volunteer work um, and I coach trial advocacy at Loyola, not right now because uh -huh. I'm campaigning, but of course. Um, for the past four years I've done that. So I've been busy. You've awesome. been super busy, <laughs> full schedule. Yes. And do you mind saying what city that was in Iowa that you were from? Or Charles what town? City, tiny town. Charles City. Yeah. Awesome. Charles. Very nice. Well, they say uh, Los Angeles is a tinsel town, land of the dream. So, you know, it's only <laughs> right that you're, you're out here now. <laughs> <laughs> Palm trees sucked me in. At all. <laughs> oh. Huge culture change, I'm sure, when you moved to L.A., right? Yeah. Well, you were in Chicago before. Well, Chicago, so yeah. you kind of, you, you experienced well, a metropolitan yeah, yeah. big city -ness. Yeah, and I, I mean, I grew up in Kingston in Jamaica, so it's it's true. not quite as metropolitan, obviously, but it's still big city. Okay. Yeah. yeah. 
one of these days, I tell my brother, we're going to go to Jamaica. We can't Oh, wait. I definitely want to go. We got to go. The food, the music, the, the culture. Come on over. Love it. I love the Caribbean, so. Yeah, Caribbean jerk chicken. I love that. All day. We were just yeah. talking We, we that. were discussing <laughs> that. Er- yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, were actually, we were actually New discussing Orleans, that right? previously. You yeah. talked to New Orleans, the street food they had? No, I didn't mention that, but okay. I asked her like, where c- I could find traditional jerk chicken here yeah. in Los Angeles. Where? So she actually told me. Ooh, she got a Well, spy. she actually didn't tell me where, but okay. she told me most of the American jerk chicken is actually too spicy. Oh. And that's actually supposed to be sweeter because in Jamaica, traditionally, it's, it's a sweeter dish. But uh, here in America, we've spiced it up. Yeah, it's not 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 necessarily sweet, but just not super duper spicy. What mm. makes it spicy is the sauce that they give you with. It's it's spiced, mm. but not spicy. Mm. Yeah, big difference. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'll have to try both. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> I like spicy, so I see why we spice yeah, it up. Same here. So. Perfect, Fernanda. Thank you. Uh, I was actually born in Echo Park right here in L.A. I'm a homegrown girl. (laughs) Uh, My father's had a small business in Echo Park for the past 45 years. And I then moved to Glendale when I was young. Mm -hmm. So I kind of bounced between the two cities. And eventually I went to Pomona College, one of the Claremont colleges. And I decided not to go to law school. Oh, wow. I graduated (laughs) from college and I decided not to go to law school. And then after about two years, I, having grown up here in Tinseltown, <laughs> uh, I was going to work in movies. I worked on movie sets. I worked in production offices. Uh, I was trying to do that. I wanted to be a producer. And after two years from when I graduated from college, I didn't like where my career was. So I decided to go to law school. Because I'm like, <laughs> a legal education never hurts. Right? It's not going to hurt me. True. So, uh, but I couldn't afford to go to, to law school full-time. I was already working. I already had to um, make my own way. So I went to Loyola at night. So Melissa was eat, was a day program and yep. I was evening. Uh, but I went there at night and I did a lot of jobs during the day. So I worked in production offices still. I worked in a law office at one point. But the job that I had consistently through my four years in law school was at a medical clinic in MacArthur Park. And uh, MacArthur Park, for those of you from LA, uh, is described as has been described as the largest open air drug market in the world. Yeah. So it is a rather n- rough park, um, and it would the medical clinic I worked at we serviced mainly an immigrant community, and while there I would see women come in who were victims of domestic violence, children who were come who came in being physically abused, young girls coming in who were sexually abused. And some of them were even pregnant. And I think the youngest we saw that pregnant was nine years old. Mm. And it just so happened that these two things collided. Law school had a program at the district attorney's office where you go and you could do something called a preliminary hearing. And while there, while I was doing it, I was like, I want to be able to help those people that I see at the clinic. And now here's this opportunity. And I remember talking to what's called the deputy in charge of our VIP program, our victim impact program at the San Fernando courthouse where I was interning. And I was asking her about how she felt about her job. What, what were her thoughts on it? And I, I'll never forget. She told me that sometimes she'd go home and cry, mm. but most of the time it was really rewarding. And then that's the moment I decided that that's what I wanted to do. And 16 years later, here I am. <laughs> here and I am in the VIP program at the Pasadena courthouse. Wow. wow, that's that's a big. That's st- an LA story. That's <laughs> a true LA story. Working like ten jobs, 
inspired the, by the film industry. Inspired. <laughs> and it's funny you say that because Stefan has his little similar journey. Yeah, like that. yeah, yeah. I worked, I, I, I worked a bit in in film and production, and that's typical LA story. Typical. And what small business did your dad have in Echo Park? I'm curious. My dad's been a dentist in Echo oh, Park wow. for 45 years, and uh, unfortunately, the pandemic hit his business very hard. Oh. My father turned 80 this year. Nice. Um, but my father also. Um, Health-wise, he's not doing great, and we were very worried about him during the pandemic. He couldn't work over people's mouths. He couldn't risk getting COVID, so um, he had to stop working. So now we're in the process of winding up that business because he just hasn't been able to to sustain it anymore, which is good. It's time for him to retire. He's 80 years old. He needs to enjoy what life he has. But, um, yeah, you know, my family hasn't gotten COVID, so I'm going to knock on this wood. There you go. Because, (laughs) uh, yeah, we can't let my parents get it. That's good. Well, no wonder you got such a pretty smile because your dad's a dentist. So that, that is great, you know. So small business. I love it. Echo yeah. Park, great story. So we, you guys, just by the start of this podcast, we're going to have some fun. So we'll go. So, so next question. What professional education do you have that qualifies you to be a judge? Uh, okay. So <laughs> my qualifications that, uh, that qualified me to be a judge. So what I talked about in being in the medical clinic. That's what really inspired me to help people. And now having worked at the DA's office for the past 16 years, I wanna be able to help more people. Uh, My trial experience, the fact that I've done 85 trials, including complex felonies. There's something called a dual jury. If you have two defendants, sometimes you have to have a jury for each one of them. Uh, Most people have never done a dual jury. I've done three in my career. Uh, I've been a law school professor for 11 years. I've taught criminal law, criminal procedure, evidence. Uh, I think that's just a few of the things that prepare me. And the fact that I really listen. I really try to listen to everyone who I come in contact with at work to see what is what can I do to make their experience a little bit better. So mainly I deal with victims of sexual abuse. That's the bulk of my cases. And I always tell them, I know that this is awful. I know that you have to come in here and talk about the worst things that have ever happened to you. So tell me if there's anything I can do to just make it just a little bit better. Make, do the little things to make the big things a little bit better. And so I think having that perspective and that knowledge qualifies me to be a judge. Awesome. Love it. Melissa? Right. Um, so obviously I went to law school. first important qualification (laughs) nice um but uh you know i've been a da also for 16 years i spent about a third of my career prosecuting the same types of cases that fernanda did with child sexual abuse adult sexual abuse rapes etc um and i've done a lot of trials um i've done about 85 trials which that number probably doesn't mean anything to anyone Mm -hmm other than other lawyers, but um, it's, it's a significant uh, number of trials. Um, but it, it's not just about that aspect of it. I think, as Fernanda said, a p- very important part of our job is listening to people, and that's something that translates to being a good judge. If you are not capable of listening to people, understanding what their needs in the moment are, even when they're not able to express themselves. And I think that's something that uniquely comes with being in 
a sex crimes type of, of assignment is you're dealing with people who are a lot of times having a hard time expressing themselves and being able to um, sort of get information to, to make the, the calls that you need to make. Um, I, I think that's a unique skill set that, that comes with that particular uh, position. Um, currently, I'm the supervisor for Compton Juvenile Division. Mm. Um, and in that position, I'm making decisions about what's supposed to happen with minors that have committed some serious, serious crimes. Um, and balancing that with rehabilitation and community safety and all of those things um, and, and the needs of victims. Uh, again, I think having to balance and come to uh, important decisions for everyone involved is exactly what a judge does. A judge sits, listens, weighs the information that they're given and comes up with the best solution possible. Um, and, and that's exactly what I do in that position. And frankly, I think that's exactly what we do as DAs every single day. Um, you know, a lot of times people think that all we do is lock them up and throw away the key and that's all we care about is, you know, win, 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 win. But what people don't see when, you know, if you step away from the stereotype of what a DA does, what people don't get to see is you, you have, you're balancing, right? You're balancing community safety. You're balancing a defendant's rights. You're balancing a victim's rights because they do have rights as well. And you have to, um, sometimes come up with creative solutions and sometimes there's no solution other than trial mm -hmm. and that's what you do but but that's our job is to balance those things every single day and and see if we can get to a point where we can come up with a solution that's as good as it can be for everyone that's involved um, sometimes that solution is prison mm -hmm. sometimes that that solution is a program of some sort sometimes it's mental health um, help uh, but it's all part of what we do. And so I think that combination of having to weigh and balance uh, is what makes for a good judge. And, and that's the experience that we bring. And just to expand a little bit on what Melissa was saying, because we've done this so often that I know exactly what she's talking about, but your audience may not know. One of the things that people don't see is all the cases that we don't file, mm. all the cases that do not end up in court. Um, because we have to have that discretion and that balancing. So it's the same type, as she was saying, the same type of thought process that a judge has to go through. We are not concerned with just one person. You know, we, as DAs, we're in this unique position where we don't have a client. We're mm. not concerned with one person. We are concerned with everything. We are concerned with the victim, the defendant, society, the oh. neighborhood. That's our concern. Of justice, of course. That's justice for all of these pieces. <laughs> to the extent you can, exactly. Well, well, I mean, I think justice is always there. Yes. It's just right. how do you define justice, but yeah. Yeah. Now, um, a question I would have for both of you is like, as judges, how do you sort of, is, is it hard to internalize all these experiences you've had as DAs and kind of try your best to be objective with every case? I mean, I, I look, everybody is prone to bias. Right. Right. That, that you can't, anybody who says that they can escape that is, is lying. Not, not self aware. <laughs> I won't go so far okay. as to say lying, okay. but Good. they're, they're not, they're not self aware. True. We all have biases. And I think, but if you're going to be better at, at being unbiased or closer to being unbiased, 
you have to examine your decisions, right? And so like Fernanda was talking about filing, when something comes in front of you and you're making that decision, do you file or not file? You, you have to be able to articulate to yourself and to others ultimately. But what is your thought process of how you get to that decision? Um, and so I, I think you just have to constantly examine your decisions and constantly say, okay, what if it were this way? Which is what we literally do every day as DAs. It's, it's what we're called on to do. And we're, you're called on to make those decisions regardless of how you feel. I can look at a case and be like, man, I know you did it. I feel in my soul that you did it. But if I don't have enough legal support for it, I'm not filing it. it because that's the ethical decision. That is the correct decision. It is the just decision. That's what it demands. It doesn't matter about how I feel. It's about making it based on what's in front of you. And that's exactly what you have to do as a judge. And Fernanda, did you want to add anything? Yeah, I was just thinking about that. When Melissa was speaking, I, I remembered a case I had where mm. I looked at the police reports and I really did not want to file. And it was because the defendant who, or excuse me, the accused at that point, uh, who stabbed the victim was female. It was a girlfriend, boyfriend, and she stabbed him. Eh, she sliced him. Anyways, I really didn't <laughs> want to file because... I was like, well, I could kind of see the surrounding circumstances, but then I was like, look, if it was reversed, if it was male and female, how would I feel about this? Mm. I absolutely exactly. file. So I, you know, there I went. I filed the case because it's not about our biases, and I could tell that that was one of my biases. I was like, nope, that's that's not the point. This is what is the correct decision given this set of facts, and that's that's what you have to do. Why did you decide that you wanted to be a judge instead of continuing to work in your present status? Uh, Fernanda, you want to take okay, this one first? I'll take it. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I had a supervisor, my very first long-term supervisor, who always told me that um, you're going to get moved in this office. So after about two years in, you have to start looking into an assignment. You have mm. to start looking for what your next assignment was going to be. And after about two years that I got to my present assignment, Pasadena, I started looking around to see because I had gotten to where I wanted to be, right? I had finally gotten to the VIP program. I was doing in the office what I wanted to do. And I was like, okay, well, what do I do now? Now that I've gotten here, what is my next step? And in thinking of everything I could do, and I knew that if I continued down this, this particular path, I would end up being a supervisor. Mm. Um, how would I feel about being a supervisor? And my most enjoyable part of doing what I do is helping people and helping people through this process. And I said, if I really want to continue helping people, I'm not going to be able to do that on a one-to-one -one basis as a supervisor. So what else can I do? And that's when I started looking at the judiciary. I had a friend who was um, looking, filling out the application to be appointed. She and I would talk about um, the lack of representation on the bench, the fact that there are very few Latinas on the bench. And eventually I decided that that's, what I wanted to do. That was the best way I could help people. As a DA, I can only handle about 30 cases at any one time, and that's a lot. Um, and that's about my limit of how many people I can help. But a judge can touch 30 cases in a day. So if that's my goal, that's where I needed to go. Now, I didn't 
want to run, <laughs> there are two ways that you can become a judge. You can either get appointed by the governor or you run in an election. Mm. And I submitted my application to, uh, for an appointment from the governor. And after about a year, I hadn't heard anything. And you send in these applications and it's like a void. You never hear back until, until they're ready to talk to you. Um, and I was at an event last November, so November of 2021, and I was speaking to uh, a judge, Judge Lucy Armanderas, and I was asking her, I was like, what can I do to get my application notice? What can I do to get, you know, kind of shake it out from whatever drawer it's in? And she said, well, you could try this, or you could try that, or you can just run. The elections are next year. You can run. I was like, no, 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 no. I, I'm not politically inclined. I've never done anything political. That's just not for me. And she said, have lunch with me next week, and I'll convince you. And I did, and now I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So you never got to talk to Governor Newsom at all? No, you? no, You no. never got to speak to him? And actually, even wow. in the appointment process, you never speak to the governor. They have what's called an appointment wow. secretary, Correct. and he's the one who does that. But um, I know Melissa went through the same process. and Still waiting. Yeah, it's just, it's just this it, 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 it takes it takes time. It's, right. It's not a, a as it should. It's not a, a necessarily a, a, a swift um, process. So this is like a fast track. Just to run <laughs> is like a fast track instead of trying to meet with Governor Newsom. It's a definitive answer. Oh, okay, got that makes sense. <laughs> it's but, a definitive but I've answer. also heard that they put applications on pause if you're running. Yes. Oh. So yeah. Um, so I decided to run. I think for a very similar reason that I decided to become a DA. Um, for me, it's about the decision and the impact of the decision. Uh, decisions, one person's decision can have a significant impact on several people, mm -hmm. uh, on, on a person's life. Um, and so for me, part of the reason I became a DA was because I felt I got the best of both worlds in that you know, I, at the time, I never wanted to be a DA, but similar to Fernanda, I ended up clerking at the office because of a program at our law school. Um, and what I learned and saw um, was a lot of hurt people um, on both sides of the table, quite frankly, people who did horrible things because of what they had endured themselves and people who ended up enduring horrible things at the hands of those people. And so for me, what I realized was that as a DA, like she said, there are many decisions that a DA makes long before a defense attorney ever touches a case, and that decision has impact. And so uh, I want to become a judge because of the scope of impact that you get to have. Um, like she said, you're, you're handling 30, 40, sometimes 50 cases a day that 50 single people, but no decision ever affects just that person. It affects them, it affects their families, it affects your community, it affects your neighborhood, it affects everyone that they come into contact with. Forever. For, forever and always. And so I, I wanted to be a part of that decision-making process and ensuring that we had more just outcomes for people. Um, Obviously, I, criminal is what I know because it's what I've done for the last 16 years, but I've seen just not great decisions that have negatively impacted accused people. Um, and I've seen not great decisions that have negatively impacted victims. Mm. Um, and so I 
want to bring my perspective, my background, not just being black or female or an immigrant, but all the totality of who I am and who what I experience, because everybody that walks in the court is not going to look like me or have my experience either. Um, but just bring all of that to the decision-making process, because I do also think that diversity is an important part of it, and that diversity is all those things I just mentioned and, and, and my background, and so that's why I decided I wanted to be a judge. Awesome. Now, one question I do have, and I want you guys to expand upon it, because you guys did both kind of mention it. Why is why is representation so important, especially within the judicial system? I'll take it. Uh, so, you know, I am the only Latina running uh, for judge. And after the primary, I am the only Latino candidate uh, because everybody else, uh, unfortunately, didn't make it past the primary. And I think representation is important in our community, in the Latino community, and also in all the other communities because in order to inspire trust and confidence in our system, it needs to look like them. So there have been studies done that say that Latinos are the group that is most distrustful of our judicial system, whether it be criminal or civil, because they walk in and they don't see anyone who looks like them. So that's part of the issue. The other part of the issue goes back to just basics, just a basic understanding of I know what the family life is like. I know what it's like to grow up in an immigrant household. I know what it's like to grow up in a Latino household. I know what the family dynamics are like because our family dynamics are unique. Right. Um, but also, I give this one example, and this is just the only time it w there's an actual published case on it, um, but I was doing a murder case. It was one of those dual jury <laughs> cases I mentioned, uh, murder case, and one of the defendants decided to testify and both of them were Spanish speaking. They had interpreters and I start to question him and I realize as I'm questioning him that I'm a native fluent Spanish speaker. That his answers were not being translated correctly. My questions to him were not being translated and it made him look evasive and I had to stop the trial and bring it to the attention of the white male judge who didn't know that this was happening, even though it could negatively impact my case. I've now created an issue in my case. I've now created an appellate issue. And that's why there's a published case on it because it is an appellate issue. Um, but that's not what was important at that moment. It wasn't important that whether or not my case would or would not be affected. What was important in that moment was to make sure that that person's rights were being strictly followed, strictly adhered to. And um, that wasn't happening. And I even had their, there's always two interpreters in the courtroom because they switch every 20 minutes. And the interpreter who was sitting in the audience was able to back me up and say, yeah, I noticed that this was happening. Actually, I even noticed something yesterday and I meant to bring it to the court's attention. But that is why representation is so important. That's why diversity is so important, so that you can have these fail safes in our system. Um, agreed. Uh, I think <laughs> it, there's two fronts to it, in right. my opinion. There's, there's the outward front, which is what the public sees, what the public experience experiences when they walk into a courtroom uh, that's a very important aspect of it in terms of having faith in the criminal justice system um, and and I think it's important to have diversity because cultural awareness is important and um, you know and the reason I say that is because behavior that may seem odd or strange to one person to someone of a different culture of uh, or of that same culture, they'll be like, nah, that happens all the time. 
because it's a cultural thing. And so if you have people that um, don't understand that, don't have experience with that culture, because um, again, everybody that comes in isn't gonna look like me, but I feel like I have significant contacts with people other than my particular ethnic group, my particular background on a regular basis, which helps to inform me when something happens. But um, I think the second aspect of it um, that we don't often talk about is amongst the judges themselves and the impact that diversity has there. Um, when you have judges from a diverse background down the hall from you and something seems odd, now I can go down the hall and be like, you know what, Fernanda, they said such and such, such and such, and it sounds like baloney to me. And she might be able to say, oh no, that's something that is definitely a part of you know, Latino culture, of uh, Brazilian culture or Mexican culture or something because she has an experience. Um, and, and so I think your presence in a room in discussions changes the way people talk. And if people change the way they talk, it changes the way that they experience things, it changes the way they make decisions. And so I think it's important to have diversity in the room, um, both in the courtroom itself, but also in, in the chambers amongst the judges. No, I, I completely agree that we should have diversity all through this country, and I'm all for it. But what I'm also, what I'm inclined, what I look for is high character. Because no matter what color, ethnicity, corruption doesn't discriminate. You know, like, evilness doesn't discriminate. You know, obviously, we, we know what's going on with Mr. De Leon, you know, which, which I met, nice guy. And we see, we see that. So to me, it's not like we just need diversity. We also need to know you, like your backgrounds, your character, high character. And that's why we're going into this next question where according to the American Bar Association, judicial temperament means that a judge exhibits compassion, decisiveness, open-mindedness, sensitivity, courtesy, patience, freedom from bias, and commitment to the equal justice. Now, which of these characters' values best describe you? Choose one. We, we all know this. You guys represent these, so but if you had to choose your favorite out of all of these, which one would you choose? And we'll start with you, Melissa. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I'm going to say a commitment to equal justice. Um, Perfect. And the reason I say that is because if you're truly committed to it, um, you're going to embody everything else on that page. Great. Right? If you're truly committed to ensuring that every single person that walks into that courtroom truly gets a fair shake, then you will be free of bias so that you can listen to what they're saying. You are going to be sensitive to their needs. You are going to treat them with courtesy and respect. You are going to show compassion. And being decisive is extremely important because a lot of people that, that anxiety of waiting to know what's going to happen, even if it's just a traffic ticket, makes a difference for people. And so I think that if you're, if you're committed to equal justice, th that would be, I'd say, my number one because it encompasses all the others. Great choice. Fernanda? Uh, same reason, but different one. So I choose compassion for the mm. same reason because if you have compassion for everyone in your courtroom, then you come to that open-mindedness, that sensitivity, that patience, 
that commitment to equal justice. But it starts with having compassion for the people who are in front of you, having compassion for the person who is late at 10, you know, shows up to your court at 10 o'clock. Because they and had to take three buses. Exactly. Mm. Because they had to take three buses. And judges who have never taken a bus before in their life don't <laughs> understand that. And they are like, well, you know, I treated that other person. You know, he got here at 9 o'clock and he got in trouble for being late. And so now I've got to make sure that you're in trouble for being late. No, you have to look at each situation and understand that there are unique circumstances for each. So so I pick compassion as being uh, the the quality that encompasses me the most. But yes, I will also say I have the rest. <laughs> <laughs> Good answer. Why do you guys feel... Now, in this moment in your life, why do you guys feel you guys are ready for that position? And one of the most important positions in the United States of America, why this time in your life are you ready for that? Well, I waited. I wanted to be a judge after I hit year 11 at the DA's office. I'm now in year 16. And I waited because I wanted to have more experience. I wanted to have more trial experience. I wanted to have more experience with victims. And so I waited till I got to that point where I felt that I had all of that and that I could be decisive enough. I had enough experience to be able to make those decisions. Um, I will say on a personal note, why now? Um, During that lunch that I alluded to uh, when Judge Lucy Armanderas was trying to convince me to run, I told her, I said, you know, both my parents are really sick right now and I don't know if it's a good time for me to run. But then I thought about it and I was like, both my parents are really sick right now. Mm-hmm. And if I ever want them to see me as a judge, this this is the time. So that's why I made that commitment uh, to run at this time. Beautiful. Um, so I waited. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I didn't always want to be a judge. Um, I think it, my experiences in the courtroom um, seeing things that I didn't like um, and seeing things that I thought were fantastic and the impact that a judge, a good judge can have on people um, started that cog turning. Um, And I chose now because um, I felt that I was more experienced. I had done a variety of trials. I had done a lot of trials. which again is is about decision making and discernment um and and i felt like i felt just more prepared to take on the weight that comes with that decision making and and that's why i chose to do it i like to think that we're you know we're still considered young people uh, yeah you know yeah, we're, we're still we're, pretty we're young like compared old, to the rest of the world yeah we're young we're older sure. young but, but us, we're like we're, f- we're still young okay <laughs> So I have to say, you know, after Donald Trump won the election mm. um, and just everything that's been happening since then with George Floyd and everything within the justice system, I feel like right, a lot yeah. of people in our generation have really given up on the justice system and politics in general. They feel like it's corrupt. It's not really tailored to our, towards us. And, you know, our voices aren't being heard, whether we protest, whether we riot, whether we post things on social media, it just really feels like our voices aren't being heard. And that a lot of people in the baby uh, boomer generation or the generation X generation, they've kind of gaslighted us, you know, for lack of a better word. Um, so my next question is, why is it important for the young people to care about who becomes a judge? And 
why should we go out and vote? Why should we take time out of our day, even though there's, you know, mail at home ballots? Why should we make the effort to care? For, uh, Fernanda, you want to sure. start with this one? Absolutely. So I have a lot of people who will say, good luck. I hope I never see you in court. I'm like, that's true. <laughs> guess what? You don't get to decide that. Because if you drive a car, if you live in a house, if you don't live in a house, if you um, work, all of those things can put you in a courtroom. And it is important that you have a say in who will be presiding over that, those um, proceedings, I guess, mm -hmm. presiding and proceedings. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> who will be um, overseeing all of that? Because a judge sets the tone in the courtroom. Mm. Um, and we're supposed to stay free of politics. Judges are not supposed to be politically involved. We can't involve ourselves in politics. We can't endorse um, um, political candidates other than judicial candidates. And that's because we're supposed to remain neutral and we're to look at every case individually. So yes, you might not care who the judges are, but you are certainly going to care if you ever end up in front of one. Mm. Sure. Um, I'm going to say this. <laughs> Give it to us. Rioting is temporary mm. right social media post is temporary very temporary uh what was the other one that you said protest <laughs> protesting protest, yeah. is temporary um real change requires work mm. it requires effort um and so if you want your voice to be heard it's not just putting it on facebook where most people are not anymore anymore these days right um it, it's not just saying your piece in a tweet or on ig you have to get more involved you have to put in the effort you have to start looking for groups whatever you and and even before that you have to start educating yourself so that you truly understand what's happening and what your position is um and so i i think that's also the reason why it's important to vote voting thoughtful voting requires you to educate yourself mm -hmm. to learn about things and i think that's the thing everybody wants a quick fix and and a lot of the things that are um in need of change are not quick fixes and so you have to be willing to put in the effort and go for the long haul and the easiest thing you can do is to make yourself an educated voter um and the reason the judges matter um, is exactly what fernanda said we're making decisions every single day about a lot of different things that impact people. And it's sort of like, I, I think of the movie Crash, where mm. it's like everybody's kind of connected yeah, from one sure. little thing. We're all connected in a way. So that judge that's making the decision about the, the person that just got a traffic ticket that, you know, may make or break them, and now they got to go out and figure out another way to to make money or they're getting evicted from their apartment or, mm. you know, they're losing custody of their child because insert reason here, any number of things. If, if you live in this world, um, it, there is a possibility that you'll end up in front of a judge and you want to know that the person that's sitting there making that decision is going to make a fair one. Um, Cause you never know what side of the, in the table you, you may end up on. You, you have no idea. You have no control over it. So uh, being a part of the process is how you affect change and, and voting is, is an important part of that and the judges who 
ultimately make decisions that affect law and whether or not a law stands and <laughs> stuff like that, uh, you, you want to be a part of that decision. Awesome. That's perfect. Okay. Yeah. Well, this is, per this is a perfect question. Do you, agree, do you agree that the more educated, wealthier, or politically connected a person is, they will receive better justice, leniency from judges, as opposed to the less educated, poor, or inability to communicate fluently in English? Let me go. Okay. Um, I think that socioeconomic status does play uh, a role in accessibility mm -hmm. in, in court. Um, I do think that language mm -hmm. plays a role in accessibility um, because if you can afford a lawyer in certain situations, especially like in, in, in uh, obviously in criminal, if you cannot afford a lawyer, one's appointed to you, Correct. right? Um, but even that, there's a threshold. Um, and so if you are make a little bit more than that, but paying for a lawyer is going to break your back, mm -hmm. that that's affecting your access, right? And it's the same thing in civil. If you cannot afford a lawyer, there are people who choose not to pursue certain things because they can't afford it, right? Um, I'm not trying to be funny, but the whole idea sometimes of cheaper to keeper Mm. Uh, because divorce is expensive, <laughs> right? Super. And 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 I, I, I'm not trying to make light of it at all, but it's it 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 really shows something that's kind of sad that you know you have to choose between your um, I don't want to say your comfort, but but standing up for your rights or pursuing your rights and maybe putting food on your table that day. Mm. Right. So I, I think that socioeconomic status, if you're wealthy, it does make it easier for you to have access to ask certain parts of the justice system, whether civil or criminal. Um, and then from the language perspective, I have, you know, in L.A., we're lucky because Spanish is so widely spoken. We have right. a, a large number, not enough, but a, a good number of Spanish interpreters in courtrooms. I think in civil, they're not always there every day. In criminal, they're, they're, they're readily available for the most part. Sometimes you have to wait. But with other languages, a lot of times they're doing, I've seen multiple times that they're doing provisional, uh, uh, qualifi qualifying someone provisionally because it's like you're the only person we can find that can speak this language. And that's a problem. If you don't understand what's happening to you, you cannot fully engage in the process. And that's not justice. So um, those are my thoughts. <laughs> Perfect. Fernanda? So I've forgotten all the details of that question, <laughs> but I do know what my answer is. My yes. answer is yes. Okay. Absolutely. Um, your background, how much money you can spend, how closely you understand what's happening will absolutely affect how your rights are being um, adhered to. And access to justice is so important, which is why it's so important to have judges who understand that. Because mm. let's talk about this for a second. When I first started in the district attorney's office, I remember routinely someone would have a fine and it would, that fine, let's say it was $100, would get tripled once you added all the fees. So 
$300 is a lot of money for someone. Correct. And I mean, even for me, I don't want like to spend for $300. Me. I was about to say, $300 is a lot of money for me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And like, and it's just, you don't want to spend that on, you know, a ticket. Um, so to have judges that understand, look, we should not be financing justice on the backs of poor people, on the backs of those who have found themselves in this system. I think it's it, that's just, it's important to have that perspective. It's also important, as Melissa was saying, in civil courts, the filing fees sometimes are outrageous. Mm. And judges can waive those filing fees. And I don't think that they they need to be able to use that discretion. I haven't been in civil court in 16 years, so I don't know what the situation is now. But I remember when I was in civil court, they were not exercising it as much as they should be. Um, having said all of that, I will say that in criminal, for a defense attorney, because I've seen this happen with, unfortunately, my own friends, um, unless you can pay hundreds and thousands of dollars for a defense attorney, the public defenders are excellent attorneys. Yeah. They are there. They are committed. The, I've always heard people say, well, you know, they're, a, what do they call them? Oh, public, public pretenders. Public pretenders. <laughs> or they'll say, yeah. you get what you pay for. And it's yeah. like, yeah, you're not paying them. The, the, the county is paying them. And they're getting a good salary. And they're doing this because they want to. Mm. So that's, that's my one plug for the public defenders, that they are very good attorneys for those who cannot afford their own attorney. Thank you. Those are those are great answers. Um, now, the next question I actually want to give to uh, one of our audience members. He's actually the producer of today's uh, podcast, yeah. my father. So uh, go ahead, Dad. Go ahead and ask uh, number eight. Thank you, son. I You're welcome. appreciate that. And thank you for these two incredible uh, women uh, who are here uh, trying to better our society. That's what it is. Yep. So the next question is, and Chris, I know you wanted to hear this question too. It appears to many young people of color, but I think even in my generation, all of us who are of color and others, that would include my generation too, that police officers get special deference in courtrooms by judges compared to other citizens. And if, and that's a big if, if you look at what's happened recently in this country and even locally, if ever they are found guilty, leniency is always given by minimum sentences, never the maximum, early release, probation, or just allowed to resign without any legal consequences. How do you view it? And uh, I, know, I know Melissa went first on the last one, so Fernanda, maybe you want to take this one? So I'm not sure. Are you asking me if it happens? Do you do you believe that this happens, or is this an issue? Is it something that we that young people perceive by saying, "Why is there a deference to police officers in the courtroom?" Yes, I think it happens. I don't know if it's a deference, but it does happen that we see uh, certain individuals not being held accountable. Um, I also will say that there's been a lot of talk about um, charging police officers more. And having taught criminal law for as long as I did, for 11 years, yeah, I just stopped for the, the campaign. I probably will go back to it. When you start looking at the rules for self-defense, because we've been talking about a commitment to equal justice, and the rules of self-defense are very favorable to, to defendants. 
And when you start applying that to police, you start thinking, well, that's unfair. They, why can't we charge them? Now, whether or not they truly, you know, whether or not that self-defense claim is legitimate is different, but they are entitled to the same arguments of self-defense as everyone else. I'm not saying it's right, but that's one of the reasons so few police officers get charged. Is it because they were really in fear for their life? Or is it because they know the system so well that they know exactly what to say? Melissa? Um, I think uh, it happens. <laughs> Not a hint. It happens. Um, but I, I, I agree with Fernanda in that it, we have to be careful in that we have to understand the concept of a commitment to equal justice. And when we start looking at people and having an automatic thought that because they're police officers that they may be lying or uh, uh, using certain things. Because if you have knowledge of the law, some people are going to use it. I think people have this idea that they just know what to say, so they're going to say what they need to say. Um, but I, I think that you also have to understand that they're entrusted with firearms to protect the community. And so sometimes there's going to be things where hindsight is twenty twenty, and we think it should happen differently. Um, and then sometimes they're flat out wrong. Mm. Um, and I think what's important is to ensure that whatever decision is being made with them, with a person who's acting in their line of duty as a police officer, is being able to co be committed to equal justice and say, look, is this true self-defense? Or is it something else? And the only way to do that is to have a commitment to being unbiased. Um, I do think that it happens, though. I absolutely think it, not think. It happens. It's not a thought. <laughs> now, will police officers get a fair and equal justice as any other citizen in your courtroom? I don't care what you do. I don't care what you do for a living. To me, it doesn't matter. To me, what I care about is what you're in front of me for, how it falls within the law, understanding the facts and nuances of a particular situation, and whether or not the, the decision that I'm making is the just outcome. Mm. So whether you are a police officer, a priest, a preschool teacher, <laughs> a, a doctor, a, a, a nanny, I, a janitor, a, a no job, mm -hmm doesn't matter to me because that's not equal justice mm. you have to have a radical to me a judge has to have a radical commitment to truly being unbiased and so the only way that can happen is to not pay attention to things that have no bearing on what's happening in this particular situation um, whatever that is because um, you're going to have police officers who come into court for child custody battles. You're going to have police officers who come into court for divorce because we don't get to pick where we go. Mm -hmm. And then you have, of course, police officers that come in to testify on criminal cases. They might come in as a victim, whatever. At the end of the day, it's what information you have to give to me that matters to the decision that I have to make. I don't give them any special pause. Um, I don't give them a leg up. I know a lot of people want to say, because DAs and police, we have an entire unit devoted to prosecuting bad police officers. 
People forget that. We have an entire unit mm. devoted to prosecuting bad police officers. How big is that unit? Uh, I don't know how many. Uh, it's DAs gotten bigger. There. It's gotten yeah. bigger recently. <laughs> so, is it not big enough? Is it different but each state? Here's too. the thing, though. Uh, a radical commitment to justice means you look at it with a true eye, not right. because of public opinion, not because of whatever. That's what a radical commitment to justice looks like. Is this, you never want to charge someone because people out there want you to. If it's not there, it's not there. Mm. That's what the 1950s was about, mm. where you had black men being charged with things because that's what the public wanted them to do, right? It justice means looking at what is in front of you and making the right decision, and it may not always be the popular one. Mm. Fernanda? So I have a caveat to that. I believe all of, of what Melissa said. I agree with it, but I have a caveat. So when we look at a case in my unit, we look at something called aggravating circumstances, things that can make it worse. And one of the aggravating circumstances that I have to look at a lot because I work with child sexual abuse cases is was that person in a position of trust or confidence yep. and police officers are in a position of trust and confidence and if they are violating that trust and confidence they should be held to a higher standard at that point point. and that's what I'm saying once they've been yep. once it's been proven that they have violated that um, I think we we give them a lot of uh, responsibility we give them a lot of benefits in our society, but if they violate that trust, if they violate that, um, they, they should be held. I'm not saying at the, when we're trying to decide whether or not they've, uh, they've committed a crime, but they should be held to a higher standard at that point. Um, and going back to what Melissa was saying about the uh, DAs, are, are former DAs or DAs more deferential to police? I will tell you that I have argued with police on a regular basis. Um, going back to the filing, we have police officers that will come in and will say, well, I, this is the charge that I think should be filed. I'm like, well, that's nice. I'm glad you think that. You have nothing in this report to, report to support that. So I can't do that. I also just had a recent, um, two recent skirmishes with a particular agency Skirmish. over how they were treating sexual assault victims and how they were treating a defendant in two different cases. And this is while I'm running, because people, I do have endorsements by um, a police officers' associations. Mm. So my opponent has tried to say that because I have these endorsements, I, I will be somehow biased towards police officers. As I've been running, as I've been seeking endorsements, I have still argued with these agencies. And I mean arguments that have gone all the way up to my boss. And I'm like, yep, go ahead, go talk to my boss. And she'll tell you why what I'm saying is correct. And I'm not going to do what you are asking me to do. Now, a follow-up question for Nanda would be like, are you concerned at all that if you were perceived as unfair to policemen in the courtroom, that you will lose those endorsements or that you will no longer have the support of police unions and other representatives? That doesn't matter to me. <laughs> if yeah. I lose the endorsement, I lose the endorsement. I still will be in my position. I still need to do what a judge needs to do. So if I lose the endorsement, oh well. The radical commitment to unbiased. Yeah. Radical Absolutely. commitment. That's high what character. What I was saying, high yeah. character. And uh, Melissa, same question. What was the question? Uh, are you <laughs> <laughs> sorry? Uh, uh, she uh, <laughs> no. Well, the follow-up oh, question: Whether yeah. you're concerned or not, if you know, if you're considered, if you're perceived as unfair to policemen in the courtroom, 
you may lose their support from the unions or other representatives. I mean, look, but people perceive and have perceptions and thoughts and opinions all day. Um, so I'm not worried about someone else's perception. What I'm worried about is that whether or not in my doing my job, um, I'm allowing myself to be affected by those things. And so for me, it, it does not make a difference. Police officers come in all shapes, sizes, levels of character, just as lawyers, nurses, doctors, other, any pick your profession, come in all shapes and sizes and levels of character. And so for me, again, my decision is based on what's before me, the information that I have, and, and what I need, to, if, whether or not I have what I need to make the decision that I'm gonna make um, or, or need to make. So I, am I beholden to any anyone? No, <laughs> police officer or not, I am not, to me, you are, you are supposed to be an independent decision maker, mm. independent decision maker. And so that's the commitment that I have and it's to working to be continuously independent as often as, as I can. And that's it. Enough and, said. And you know, any one endorsement, and I don't care who that endorsement comes from, is not going to make or break um, either one of our uh, candidacies here. But it is the strength of our character, the strength of our positions and our convictions. Perfect. That was enough said, like you said. So Enough said. Uh, perfect. So let's change the subject a little bit. In your present jobs that you guys do now, do you advocate in any manner for at-risk groups such as unhoused, undocumented, poor, or non-English speakers? Um, oh, is it me or is it Cass? Or <laughs> whoever um, wants to go first. No uh, pressure. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Um, because I work right now in a unit that handles domestic violence cases, rape cases, child molestation cases, child abuse cases, human trafficking, and elder abuse. So it's cases Everything. where the victim needs a little bit more attention, whoever that victim may be, whether they are Spanish-speaking or a different language-speaking, whether they are housed or unhoused, whether they um, developmentally um, different, whether they... identify as LGBTQ, you still have to look at their case and once you have filed that case, make sure that their rights as victims are adhered to. So yes, I, I believe I argue for all of that. And I also do it on the side of the accused. Hmm. I, um, I have a case where there's a charge called lewd act on a child under 14. Sounds like a horrible thing. But, and it is, but you have a spectrum of behaviors. So you have a lot of things that that one charge encompasses. And I had a case where the defendant was um, developmentally, he was not the same as his age. And he had a behavior. I mean, he did something. He, he would put his thumb in little girls' mouths. Mm. And he said he did it for sexual gratification. So that's what made it go under that charge. And the victim's parents really wanted him to go to prison for it. And I said, you know what? I understand that this is horrible. I understand that your child has been affected. But this is a case where intervention, rehabilitation can really make a difference in everyone's life. And we can get to the root cause of this crime and have a better outcome for everyone. 
So even though it was an unpopular decision with the victim and um, with others, I thought that was what justice was in that case. So yes, you have to look at every case individually and look at all of those factors that you talked about. Um, in our job specifically, uh, what Fernanda talked about, especially in, in um, sex cases and, and dealing with victims and, and victims of domestic violence, et cetera, definitely we're advocating for um, help for those people. A lot of people forget that uh, a lot of victims are unhoused themselves. <laughs> um, it's not just that a, an accused or a defendant is unhoused. Uh, it, sometimes victims are unhoused as well. A lot of times, not even sometimes. Um, and so we help find solutions for those victims as well. Um, and it ranges from therapy to housing to um, sometimes just some clothes on their backs. Uh, yeah. For me, outside of work, um, I do volunteer in a variety of capacities. Um, for a most recent, I did um, with a group, I did uh, foster hair, uh, uh, hair kits for foster kids um, who are black, but housed with uh, non-black families because black hair is not like everybody else's hair. It is unique and it's, it, it deserves to be treated the way it needs to be treated to be healthy and, and you know, appearance is an important part of a child's development. And um, so we created hair kits with a book so that parents who, um, foster parents who take in a child who happens to be African-American um, can give that simple thing mm -hmm. to the child that they're, they're helping. Um, so, you know, and I've done food giveaways and, and grocery shopping for the elderly and a, var a variety of things. So I think uh, both in, in nine to five and five to nine, yeah, mm. I do. How's that going, by the way, with the hair kits? Are you seeing an impact? Um, that was the first time that we did it. Awesome. Um, so uh, we brought it to, we made the kits, and then we brought it to um, DCFS for mm. distribution because Smart. they're the ones that um, get it out to the kids. So uh, we haven't heard yet how many of the kids got them, but I'm sure they get them out. I think that's such a good idea. Brilliant, you know? So perfect. Let's awesome. Well, before we wrap this up, I want to give you each both the chance to final thoughts, anything you'd like to say to our audience, whether about your candidacy or where they could find more information. Sure. Um, Melissa, would you like to start? Sure. Um, I, go vote. <laughs> mm. <laughs> go yes. vote. Yes. Uh, that, that's my first thing is, is read up on the, the different races and, and go vote. Make yourself an, a truly educated voter, not just what, your friends tell you to do or someone else that you may think you trust d learn for yourself and, and there's nothing more empowering i think than making that decision for yourself and knowing that you did it with thought and care um of course vote for me um, <laughs> uh, um not just because i'm telling you but i think if you do your research yourself i, I do believe that you'll see that i am the better candidate in that in, the, in my seat um, I'm the more experienced candidate, um, for sure. Uh, and, um, 
I want to bring what I talked about, which is a true commitment to justice, equal justice. And I say it all the time. I am a lion Mm. for justice. Love it. (laughs) (laughs) A warrior for equity and a champion for equality because I firmly believe that the idea of justice for all should not be an idea alone. And what I want to do is everything in my power to ensure that we get it or as close to it as we possibly can in the flesh. So Melissa Lyons, seat 90, www.melissalyon is in Nancy, S is in Sam, the number four, judge, J-U-D-G-E dot com. All right, let's get it. Nice, powerful. I love it. Fernanda? Uh, So same thing, you know, make sure you have a voting plan. I didn't realize how important it is to have a voting plan. Make sure that you're registered to vote. Uh, The deadline to register to vote for mail-in ballot passed yesterday, but that you can still register to vote. You can register in person. You will, you can go to a voting center. You can cast your provisional ballot. So make sure that step one is done. Find out, decide if you're going to vote in person or by mail if you already have your ballot, which most of you do already. Um, And then find a drop-off box. We don't suggest mail. Um, U.S. Postal Service is a little bit slower, so go find that drop box. Or if you're going to go in person, find your local voting center and figure out when a good time is for you to go to vote because you don't have to vote on November 8th. That is the day the election ends. The election has already started. People are voting. Votes are being turned in now. And then, yes, of course, vote for me (laughs) because uh, I have uh, endorsements matter because endorsements are people that have looked at me, that have looked at Melissa and have said that we are the most qualified candidate for this seat. So I have the endorsement of over 35 uh, sitting judges, including the presiding judge of Los Angeles County. I have over 45, I might be getting close to 50 now, uh, elected officials, including... um, Senator Steve Bradford, Senator Maria Elena Durazo, um, more than I can't even remember. And this is what I'm really proud of. So no matter what happens in this election, I'm most proud of this endorsement. On Friday, I got the endorsement of Dolores Huerta. Wow. So if you don't know who Dolores Huerta is, she is a union icon, a warrior for women, and just a civil rights activist. So I was almost in tears when uh, I got that. So, and the LA Times endorsement, and I will end it this way. The LA Times, in the words of the LA Times, Beretta would excel. So I am the better candidate (laughs) in this seat. Uh, All my social media handles are the same, Beretta for judge. So it's B-A-R-R-E as in Edward, T as in Tom, O, number four, judge. And my website is just Fernanda Fernanda Beretta for judge.com. Thank you. And uh, we'll be posting all the links and all the um, social media tags in the description of the episode. So if you missed any of that, please check the description. You will find all the links and handles there. And also, don't forget to subscribe to the Bonus Room podcast. And uh, Santiago, you got anything else? Oh, yeah. We breaking news. Uh, The Bonus Room just endorsed both these candidates. Yes. These guys received received another endorsement. Thank you again, you guys. This was a pleasure. We truly appreciate your time. 
and being with us. This was amazing, and we can't wait to put this out to the world and talk to yeah. our friends. And like I said, breaking news: they have an endor- they have our endorsement. So it's a big endorsement. <laughs> and for everybody listening, please tell your friends to vote and yes. vote for Melissa Lyons and Fernanda Brito. Yes, easy. <laughs> yes, please like, comment, and share. Please share the links. Please spread the word. Please just have people vote. Just encourage others to vote and to make their voices and opinions heard. And once again, please like, comment, subscribe to the Bonus Room Podcast. And we will see you guys next time. Thank you again, ladies. This was amazing. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right, guys.